Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I lived in a city in the desert and grew to love the austere landscape with its vast emptiness. In a curious way, the receding sand hills reminded me of the drumlins that fringe the Bog of Allen. The old desert towns were beautiful too, whitewashed buildings close together forming a maze of streets and alleyways which catch whatever breezes are blowing. And always around every corner a square or a courtyard with water at its centre. On the desert island of Sadiat, on the edge of the Arabian Ocean, we wandered a maze of streets and felt the sea breeze and glimpsed the sea through the white rectangular buildings. The central courtyard has an ornate roof, eight metal discs resting one on top of the other, each formed from a lattice of star shapes. The effect is airy and weightless. Through this screen, the light falls gently as from a starry firmament. The filtered drops and spots of light change shape, appear and disappear on the white buildings and promenades below. The play of light and shade is spellbinding. This is the splendid dome over the Louvre Museum Abu Dhabi, designed by the French architect Jean Novel. We travelled to see it and be amazed shortly after it opened in November 2017. And we were amazed. We shared the museum with groups of art students. For some of these young visitors, the most exciting exhibits on display were themselves. They preened and posed and pouted for selfies, or filmed themselves as they strolled around, spectacle and spectators in one. We were amused and entertained. I think Napoleon would have understood their self-preoccupation, or at least the Napoleon represented in the iconic portrait by Jacques-Louis David, the emperor on his Arabian steed crossing the Alps. This Napoleon wears a gold-trimmed bicorn and is wrapped in a billowing cloak as his grey mare rears up on her hind legs. The emperor's right hand is held aloft and seems to gesture to a glorious future. Everything in the portrait is about self-presentation, Napoleon offering his heroic version of himself to the world. There is something incongruous, ironic even, in viewing this enormous portrait of Napoleon Bonaparte in an Arab country, in a museum which has bought the Louvre name, the loan of key exhibits, including this painting, and the expertise of museum staff for a period of 30 years from the French government for a reported billion dollars. Among the borrowed paintings are works by Monet, Picasso, Gauguin, Renoir, However, it was a Renaissance masterpiece that stopped us in our tracks, the portrait of an unknown woman, one of only five paintings by Leonardo da Vinci in the Louvre collection, which is on display here. It is a beautiful work. What was not on display was Salvatore Mundi, the portrait of Christ attributed to Leonardo, which was bought at auction in November 2017 for $450 million, making it the world's most expensive painting by a country mile. The same painting sold for £45 at Sotheby's in 1958. 
No reason has been given for the delay in exhibiting the painting, and wild rumours abound in the art world about its current whereabouts that sound like the plot of a Cold War thriller. But in truth, the Salvatore Mundi sideshow distracts from the treasures that are on display in this extraordinary building. The museum's permanent collection features artefacts from the civilizations that existed between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, Ubedian, Sumerian, Assyrian, and from cities whose names resonate with romance and mystery, Ur, Nineveh, Babylon. The portrait of a Persian archer on glazed brick from the ancient city of Persepolis is as bright and vivid as if it had been painted yesterday. It is over 2,000 years old. But for all the exhibits which speak to the splendour of empires, it is the ceramics from thousands of years ago used for cooking and storing food with their delicate motifs that moved me. I wanted to stretch out and touch them, to connect with the women and men who made and used them, and the other simple objects which adorn their living and their dying, the masks and funerary jars, the tiny fertility figures, the neck ornaments and jewellery, the pots and pans. These spoke loudest to me across the centuries and the millennia. These modest objects were made by individuals who loved and hoped and grieved and created. They worshipped heavenly bodies and prayed that their children would arrive safely into this world and their crops would grow and the seasons would follow one after the other. And they commemorated their loved ones. And although they are long dead, we can know them through the objects they made. For years to come, visitors will be drawn to this museum that is really a desert town under a magical canopy, not because of its name or its borrowed paintings, but because here they will find beautiful objects from the distant past which express what it means to be human when all pomp and ceremony is stripped away. And I suspect, like me, these future visitors will be moved beyond words. Deep in the undergrowth, on the periphery of Farmley Estate, lies a hidden gravestone. To get close to it, you have to carefully negotiate the brambles and ivy, and even then, it's only barely possible to make out the inscription. It reads, Mouse, born June 1877, died November 1878, was placed here by Blanche Herbert, who loved him dearly and bitterly mourns his loss. So, about 130 years ago, a little girl lost her pet and grieved so deeply for her tiny companion that a gravestone was commissioned and placed so that she could visit him regularly, lest her love for him be forgotten. Across the city, in a corner of the walled garden of the Royal Kilmainham Hospital, lies a much larger gravestone. 
This memorial was placed 21 years later and commemorates a much larger creature. The inscription reads, Beneath this stone rests Vonalel. For 23 years the charger and faithful friend of Field Marshal Lord Roberts of Kandahar. He had the honour of being decorated by the Queen with the Arkan Medal with four clasps, the Kandahar Star and the Jubilee Medal. He died at the Royal Hospital Comanum, 1899. It goes on. There are men, both good and wise, who hold that in a future state, dumb creatures that we have cherished here below shall give us joyous greeting when we passed the Golden Gate. Is it folly that I hope it may be so? These gravestones display the grief that many pet owners feel at the loss of a beloved animal and the human desire not to accept the finality of death. This love of animals isn't new. In the 9th century, an anonymous Irish scholar, hard at work, celebrates his cat in the famous poem Panger Bawn. He notes how the cat's activities mirror his own in a strange way, as Seamus Heaney's translation has it. All the while, his round, bright eye fixes on the wall, while I focus my less piercing gaze on the challenge of the page. Within the broad field that's known as animal studies, I'm currently exploring some of the ways that humans and animals have shaped each other's lives. Back in the 1980s, Keith Thomas, one of the founding fathers of animal studies, drew up a very straightforward definition of how human relationships with pets differed from human relationships with other animals. Put simply, pets are given a personal name, often human, they are never eaten, and they are allowed into the house. However, that definition is clearly very flexible, because we have here three animals. Mouse, who we'll assume was a mouse, Vonalel, a horse, and Pangerborn, a cat. The cat fits neatly into Keith Thomas's definition of a pet. It gets a personal name, it is never eaten, and it's let into the house. But as for the other two, most people expressly do not want mice in their homes, and horses are far too big and unwieldy to bring in. And yet, from the inscription of Vonalal's gravestone, we gather that the field marshal is so beside himself with grief that he prays that his horse has a soul and that they will be reunited after death. It's unlikely that many people have pondered on the likelihood of a mouse possessing a soul, and even though Blanche Herbert shared her life with mouse for 18 months and bitterly mourned his loss, the grave doesn't suggest the hope of a reunion in the hereafter, although maybe she did harbour hope. Pet cemeteries began appearing in Britain and France in the late 19th century and were initially ridiculed as feminine, childish and sentimental. That claim is unlikely to have been levelled at the field marshal, however. He was not ashamed to call his horse his friend, a phrase generally reserved for those of equal standing. In fact, the awards for bravery bestowed on Vonalel during his lifetime suggest that war horses were anthropomorphised by at least some in the military. Over the course of the 20th century, pet graveyards became more popular both here and abroad. It'll be interesting to see how they evolve in the future, particularly now we have so many designer pets whose human companions, rather like new parents, enthusiastically trade stories of lives transformed by the new addition to the family. A horse.
horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the source and ask the horse, he'll give you the answer that you'll endorse. He's always on a steady course, talk to Mr. Red. My mother was born in a tiny house at the foot of the Dublin mountains and reared on nettles and big heads of spring cabbage that her father, Dom, grew in the plot behind the house. Later, they moved to Rathfarnham and our Nana Dublin's house had a little square window to the side of the door like an eye watching. The sitting room had lots of ornaments, a piano and the figurine of a dark-haired girl with a red skirt dancing. This, we thought, was our mother, Laurie, because when she was only seven, she'd won the equivalent of a man's wages, dancing and singing in the city, winning that talent competition every week until they told her she would have to stop entering. Papa Dublin was still growing food at the very end of the back garden, and there was a swing and snapdragons that my sister Elaine and I picked and put on our fingers to make them snap. I was afraid of the bigger girls on the road, swinging around lampposts on a rope. Their hop and kick the can across chalk squares and Nana Dublin was busy, one daughter still at school, freshly ironed shirts hanging on the backs of doors and lunches wrapped in saved bread wrappers for her sons to bring to work the next day. When she called us into the kitchen for the treat, a slice of batch loaf, butter and jam, or a buttercream biscuit, we tried to look pleased. But our other grandmother, Nana Ross, had help in her house behind and above a small grocer's and sweet shop on Priory Street in New Ross. And when we visited, we were spoiled with ice creams, flakes, chocolate crisps and sweets in a paper cone, or brought over the town to Nolan's or Campbell's for toys, books and comics, and in summer, seaside trips to Duncannon. At parties in Rathfarnham, Nana Dublin sang, If you were the only girl in the world. When she was just a little girl, she was fostered and reared by two women in Tala, whom we were introduced to as aunts. With the self-absorption of children, we didn't even question this. We didn't know that she'd been fostered, who her mother was, and even now, what happened between her birth and this adoption. Had she been with her mother or somewhere else? And was the lady from Hoth who visited her once a week in Tala her mother? I wish that I had known, because I would have immediately empathised with the fearful, lonely child she must have been, a little girl called Rosie. But Rosie had other stories, and when my mother was away, we spent a whole day together cleaning out cupboards. I was fascinated by the ash on the tip of the fag in her mouth, as she told me a love story about the older man with the limp who came calling, our Papa Dublin, Dom. I thought she didn't like me, but it was only that she was so busy and I didn't notice her gifts for making ends meet, her gifts of food to my mother when we were small. Later, she was at every show we did, sitting in the audience, enjoying it all and there for my Debs, my wedding. I was friendly, but I held myself apart because with the heartlessness of a child, I'd set them up against each other, my two grandmothers. And in a way, I was set up as well because I stayed with and bonded with Mary Ann, my Nana Ross, when I was a baby, 
and again for some months as a toddler when my mother was ill. And when my mother finally came to collect me, she told me that I turned away, rejecting her as I thought I had been rejected. But I'm back in Loretta Park today, looking for Rosie's home, the one-eyed house with the snapdragons. There are no children hopping and kicking a can, though there is an echo. And I picture my mother with her dark curls bobbing, jumping rope, tap dancing in the local hall. Her gift for dance and how she passed it on to my sisters and I and our children and now their children. Beyond these roles that we are all assigned, mother, daughter, sister, granddaughter, grandmother, there are women with their own inner lives and stories. And there's so many questions that I want to ask. But for most of my life, I was looking the other way, away from the matrilineal line, though it lives and breathes through me, the fear of abandonment, the strong rhythm of our feet on old boards, Rosie singing at a party, the break in her voice. <laughs> If you were the only girl in the world And I were the only boy Nothing else would matter Walk in the woods at Marley. Leaves filter yellow light shining between mossy trunks, beginning to enter this little copse. Here, the ear of the walker might share a sound with the badger, swallow, hare, or bee. Underfoot, the seed's destruction is the green stem sprouting. New beginnings take shape on the walk. I have never really loved dogs. Sometimes, when there was absolutely no one else on whom to bestow love, some dogs have loved me, but only, I've always felt, until someone better turned up. At home, when I was young, one of our dogs would climb up on my bed and snuggle against my legs like an outside hot water bottle. That was wonderful while it lasted, but my brother in the next bed had only to say the dog's name, Bup, and Bup would suddenly be on my brother's bed and not mine. Later, we had a dog called Gilly. Gilly was some kind of terrier and very affectionate, especially to my mother. My mother rarely went away, but when she did, others were away as well, and I was left with the job of minding and feeding Gilly. Feeding him was no problem, but minding him was something else, because he came and went as he pleased, as dogs did in those days and never once asked for permission. He disappeared. I called him, whistled for him, searched the whole area, even as far as the beach. 
but there was no sign. For two days there was nothing, and then my mother came home. But Gilly was gone. My mother never accused me of neglecting Gilly, but I always felt she blamed me. In my own family, we are on our second dog. Pepsi, the first, was a gentle mongrel. She was affectionate in her own way, but she put on weight in later life, largely because her walking regime was compromised, because she had a habit of slipping her collar and going home when she felt she had had enough, which was always quite soon after the walk had started. We remember her with affection, but there are very few stories. It's as if she slipped through our lives without once rocking anybody's boat, except when she died. She had got old and slow when, unfortunately, a car hit her just outside our house. She was seriously injured when my wife went to pick her up and Pepsi, gentle, inoffensive Pepsi, bit my wife's hand. A vet came to put Pepsi out of her misery and my wife spent a week in hospital. And now we have Max. Max is a chocolate Labrador and very handsome. He is also a thief. He's tall enough to reach the kitchen counter, and if you leave food within reach, well, that's Max's. He has taken a whole pizza, a loaf of bread, some scrambled egg on toast, and most recently, 30 Chinese dumplings wrapped in a damp tea towel waiting to be cooked. He took my medication from my bag, and I found it unopened beside his bed. He decided, I suppose that inhalers weren't worth the trouble of tearing through paper and plastic. We're more careful now, of course. We shut him out of the kitchen and we also shut him out of the living room because he can't resist the couch and he leaves his hairs, many hairs, everywhere. He loves the back garden and every so often, if nobody will chase him, he just runs at speed all around the garden. Imagine my Italian friend on the phone to her mother in Italy having this ball of lightning whizzing past her every few seconds. Wisely, she didn't move until the performance was over. Max is terrified of fireworks. We have always known that, and when Halloween comes, we lay in stores of sweets and crisps and cupcakes for visiting children and medication for Max. Very early one morning recently, Max banged on my bedroom door. He isn't a scratcher, he bangs on the door. I don't know how he does it. This couldn't be fireworks, I thought, but he was terrified and shivering all over. He climbed up on the bed and I put my arm around him. He settled a bit. Then I heard a click and he stood, shivering again. It took me a little while to realise that the battery in our smoke alarm needed replacing and the noise it made was frightening him. So before six on a Saturday morning, I got steps and took the batteries out of both of our smoke alarms. And then Max and I went back to sleep. I think Max loves me a little, especially when I'm the first up and he greets me at the bottom of the stairs with a toy or a piece of paper in his mouth, his whole body, not just his tail, wagging and a kind of croon coming out of him that is neither bark nor growl. At such moments, I love him too. Max, era Max, più tranquillo che mai, la sua lucidità 
Ten years ago, Tony McMahon had a rambling house night in his own house in the Liberties. It was a wonderful night with excellent traditional music, poetry and chat. Tony was convinced that there were echoes in the house of those generations that went before us. When he played the slow air Port Nabuki, I thought that it was a fitting air for the occasion. So I wrote the following poem as a tribute to Tony, to the music and to the ordinary people of the inner city especially. Port Nabuki to Tony McMahon Therish unseen hinches na sirshi Flo diemer ishtach sa chakpiog kaharach A blashikol na vhealta A frag skahav nir chulahas gligar radio telefisha na phone polka Octoni le chiol si, moravir fulu nanangwe, ishtigar in inish ihikyali. An oti masha tokelesh vigiler scoundra, a virna egden of burdo goni. As folly a chanti, heltic cogging scohana huswincher nikarnoiga, sclavaha, agus kyardaha in a vestish ibra, bonaltil in a boshti gublacha, kusnokta. Anarina Huire in a Berakoti, Mialta Kyol Drekta of Uska Kyol. Gunyarnag Urlisht in Chakpyog, Osa Foshkog is a Funyog Noti Unrika, Mortis Kinne, Baha is Boss, Passion, Weakness. Togum almost on Kyol Tor, Dun Kyol, Dohashi a Tvig, Dunarnon Fain Moravi, Agus Braham Fos, Port Nabuki. Music of the Spirits for Tony McMahon After the siege of Ennis in the Liberties, we thronged into the small inner city house to experience otherworld music. For a short while, we no longer heard the jingle of radio, television or mobile phone. Merely the ripple of fairy music once wafted by the breeze on a moonlit island its grace notes captured by a startled fiddler, its phrases still troubling his soul. From the walls of the old house towards us crept the shades of working people from the square, labourers and tradesmen in their working clothes, housewives with their ragged children in bare feet, young darlings in their petticoats, all enticed by the enchanted box music until the house itself became an instrument from which clear notes were rung. Pride of race, life and death, passion, solitude. I defer to the musician, to the music, to the shades of the small house, to night visits of old, and I can still hear spirit music in my sleep.
Lament for Tony I see you now walking the limestone lanes in West Clare, lilting, Portna Buki or on Colleen Das Crute and the Mo, heading for the Burren or Heaven as you know it. On the programme this morning, Selfies, Napoleon Bonaparte, Pots and Pans and The Louvre was by Kevin McDermott. When Love is More Than Human by Anne-Marie Durkin. If You Were the Only Girl was by Lanny O'Hanlon. A Walk in the Woods at Marley, a poem by Grace Willens. Dogs by Michael O'Connor. Port Nabuki de Tony McMahon, a poem by Declan Collins. And finally, Lament for Tony a poem by J.M. Dolan. The music was Ya Habibi Tala by the Kronos Quartet, the theme to the TV show Mr. Ed, If You Were the Only Girl in the World by Dean Martin, The Morning Dew by The Chieftains, composed by Paddy Maloney, Max by Paolo Conte, and Port Nabuki by Tony McMahon. Grace Willens's poem A Walk in the Woods at Marley, the title of which comes from the painting by Evie Hone, was commissioned as part of DLR Heritage's Marley Creative Responses Project. And Lanny O'Hanlon's essay is part of The Plough and the Stars, Working People's Prose from Contemporary Ireland, edited by Jenny Farrell and published by Culture Matters. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Willem McCartney and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.